Good afternoon, everybody. I'm here today to welcome Dr. Karen Wingfield. We are so excited to have you. Thanks very much for joining us. Can you share with our audience a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to connect with you and all of your, your listeners and viewers. I am Dr. Karen Wingfield. I'm a radiation oncologist, but I actually consider myself a community engagement specialist. Uh, one of the things that I really hope to achieve over uh, the course of my lifetime is to ensure that individuals, communities, uh, families really have the tools that they need uh, to advocate for themselves in the healthcare setting. And that's really important to me. Um, I started out uh, my training in in the South. So I, I was at Duke where I went to medical school and, and got my PhD there and then traveled north up to Boston uh, where I finished my radiation oncology training, stayed on faculty there for, for a time. But then really my calling has been around community engagement, a community engaged research, implementation science, meaning how do we take this knowledge that we've gained about what some of the issues, barriers uh, might be for communities and how do we actually implement change? Uh, so that's what I've been doing. I am very pleased now to be the executive director of the Meharry Vanderbilt Alliance in Nashville. And I split my time between Nashville and Winston-Salem, North Carolina right now. That's amazing. It's amazing. And, 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 aren't you on the President's Cancer Council? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I'm, <laughs> I was just appointed to the National Cancer Advisory Board, and I'm grateful to be one of 18 individuals in the country who are helping uh, to uh, provide some, some thoughts around the way that cancer care is delivered and uh, cancer research uh, is done here in the United States. So I was very honored uh, to have that um, appointment. Well, I, for one, am grateful for your leadership and really relieved. <laughs> so thank you for all you do. Um, you know, we hear a lot about uh, in this panel, in this whole workshop, we've had several people talk about health disparities and health equity. You as an expert in that area, is there is there a way that you can you know, decipher that for us. What is the difference between health equity and health disparities? What are the differences? Yeah, it's such a great question. You know, I think health disparities has been oftentimes used as a way to just count beans. It's like a metric of looking at what are the differences in terms of the incidence, meaning number of new cases, how prevalent, meaning uh, how uh, pervasive a particular disease might be in a community. Um, and, and they look at it in terms of differences based on race, ethnicity, geography. So health disparities is oftentimes a broad lens, but it's oftentimes the bean counting of what are the things that we're seeing in terms of health um, or diseases more than health. And I think from my perspective, health equity is really about thinking about the social justice issues and the reasons, the rationale, um, what is accounting for those differences that are seen. Sometimes people make the assumption that if there are differences, ah, oh, it's just because that population has poor genetics or, you know, they're just quote unquote weak or whatever. And no, uh, we know that there are structural barriers. And so equity, when you think about equity, and it's not equalness, right? <laughs> you don't want to give each person the same thing because some individuals need extra. Some people need less in terms of care. This is about ensuring that everyone has the appropriate means by which to access health care in general. And so when you think about inequity, that really implies unfairness, 
mm-hmm. uh, injustice. Um, and we know that those are, are things that we've seen here in this country where literally individuals are denied care, whether it be because of their race, ethnicity, whether it be because of their, uh, their status uh, from a citizen see, uh, citizen's perspective, um, whether it be historically or even what we're seeing currently. And there's been a lot of, of eyes opened if you will, during the COVID-19 pandemic, because people didn't understand that the disparities were that we're seeing in other diseases are not related to genetics, that it's really those social determinants of health that are oftentimes built um, on barriers that are structural, structural barriers, structural injustices, mm-hmm. all the racisms or other isms that there are that really cause this to be a social justice issue. So that's how I would say, you know, I, in some ways I feel like health disparities are really just the tools, you know, the, the numbers that we need to help us measure mm-hmm. how we're doing. With respect to health equity, but it's really important um, not to lose sight of the fact that we're just measuring outcomes mm-hmm. pers- and and not necessarily thinking about the root causes for those outcomes. Right, right, right. It is a mind-expanding conversation for so yeah. many of us that have might take something for granted or might not understand. And you know, I know in my own circumstances when I've had to seek healthcare, I wonder how people who aren't me can do it because it's a struggle. It is a struggle. And so you wonder how people who don't even have access can can get into it. And, you know, it's really it's a a fascinating area and a critical area to look at. You did a report that I was hoping you could share a little bit about with us. Can you tell us about that report? Yeah, you're referring to the framework, um, the actionable framework. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, that actually came out. So my colleagues and I, um, in January of 2021, published an article in the Journal of Oncology Practice that was around our um, development of an actionable framework that could be used to address cancer care disparities, um, specifically for medically underserved populations in the United States. Mm-hmm. And what we quickly found out as we were writing the paper, this again, this came out in the midst of COVID. We were writing the paper and then the pandemic kind of happened, which delayed things. But we realized and recognized that the framework, while it was built and developed and uh, around cancer care, mm-hmm. is really, frankly, something, a framework for public health. It's a framework for how to improve care generally. So let me just state that. Um, I'll tell you what we did is while the paper just came out in 2021, we actually had been uh, pulled together experts from around the country back in 2018. Uh, we did some qualitative work, uh, qualitative analysis, pulled together these stakeholders. It was a multi-stakeholder group. In fact, this paper was actually born out of a relationship with um, with uh, Patty Doikos. I don't know if you know Dr. Mm-hmm. Doikos, but she's at Bristol-Myers Squibb Foundation. So we wanted to make sure that all stakeholders, this wasn't just about clinicians saying, oh, well, this is the system is bad. We had stakeholders that included providers. We had um, uh, basic scientists. We had population health scientists. We had pharma at the table. We had insurers at the table. We had government. We wanted to make sure that the stakeholders at the table providing 
some of this this vision um, around this framework were really representative. So we actually had over 84 uh, different individuals involved in the process uh, from eight different stakeholder groups, including wow. patients. Um, and uh, it took a while to get things together. We did. Um, we, we started out doing some qualitative work. We did some surveys to find out, you know, what are the gaps? What are you seeing as the gaps in care? What are some of the major issues that we that we might want to consider? Um, we had already done um, an environmental scan, looking in the literature to find uh, who some of these experts might be. We then pulled together the experts. We invited them all to sit at a round table. We had over mm-hmm. 30 individuals who came and sat down to have a more a, a deeper discussion. And then the paper is actually the result. It's it's essentially the white paper from from that round table and all the work that went into it. So that's just the kind of background for the for the for the paper. So it's amazing, amazing work, and and organizations like ourselves will be looking to it for a long time to help help others navigate this area. Um, just like this conversation is so helpful. Is there was there were there typical barriers that you can share with us? Is there anything that we could do today? I mean, can you share some of the barriers and? Are, are, are any of them fixable <laughs> yeah. in your future? <laughs> you know, frankly, we've known about a lot of these things for a long time. The issue with respect to the disparities that we see in outcomes, mm-hmm. uh, particularly with respect to race and ethnicity, they are not new. The disparities that we see with respect to geography are not new. Uh, I think we are starting to see that there are disparities in other populations, including our LGBTQ plus community, that may not have been front and center before uh, because of all the stigma. But we're seeing these barriers. So they're not new. So let's let's let me just say that Um, a couple of things that I think were resonated across the domain. So remember, we were focused on cancer care. Mm -hmm. We had four high level domains because we, we we wanted to make sure that when we were developing this framework, that it did just what you said. What are the things that are actionable? So we we looked at screening, diagnosis, uh, treatment, and survivorship. Those are the four domains. Mm-hmm. And noticed that a huge challenge, which you yourself may have experienced, is lack of coordination, right? Lack of coordination of care is a major barrier to individuals. Uh, but that's internal. What are the external things that can become barrier? Well, how about transportation? <laughs> transportation, believe it or not, in the United States is one of the number one barriers to, to cancer care. Uh, there are issues. These are the logistic, the social support needs that we're finding for people across all of those domains. Right? You need transportation to go for screening. You need transportation to go for diagnostic testing. You need transportation to get to your treatment to and from. You need transportation to deal with any survivorship issues that may come up. Right? Transportation. What? It seems so ridiculous to have to say that. I mean, I've been stuck where I remember not that long ago, a chunk of time ago, I gave my car to the, to the guy at the hospital park and they wanted my credit card and I didn't have my wallet. Because I, mm. I was like a nine one one, so it was that kind of, you know, some of the it's the little stuff, the the stuff that's not thought about. Mm-hmm. And I did want to say why some of these issues are not new. This conversation is fairly new, and your bravery is to be commended <laughs> for bringing it up because some of these things are uncomfortable and they make people yes. feel defensive or they make them feel like it's something that they can't manage, but they can manage, you know, I do know just from my own experience that there are opportunities where we can ask to raise the bar for really simple things. And most times in my experience, people say, 
you know what? You're right. I don't know how this happened. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not as hard as it seems, but we are super grateful for you really bringing a focus to this. Well, um, I, let, me just, let me just piggyback on that, what you just said, because I, I do agree that some parts of this conversation are new. I think the newness for me, as somebody who's been doing this work for decades, is the fact that we can now name some of the reasons for the barriers, right? I can say racism now mm-hmm. in 2022, where I felt uncomfortable personally even saying that several years ago, but knowing that racism is one of the structural barriers. Any of the isms, doesn't matter if it's, you know, um, you know, genderism, I, I don't even know if that's a word, right? Any of the isms um, that really impact how we view other people, we can now name that. And so I think that's one of the things, again, I I believe the pandemic has opened people's eyes, their willingness to have those discussions. I'm not sure how uh, long that window is going to remain open to be to have these discussions. So that's why I'm, I'm all over. I'm like, woohoo, we can actually have these conversations and be real about it. There are people who are literally offended if I say the word racism. I can't tell you. All right. I will tell you. Um, I remember giving a talk at a meeting mm-hmm. and people were scathed. They were like angry and writing in the chat because it was virtual because of COVID. Mm-hmm. I can't believe this. She's disgusting. She's a socialist. And I'm like, what? okay, wait a minute. Like, <laughs> so I'm just pointing out an area where we all as Americans should be concerned about the health and well-being of our nation. And that includes the individuals, that includes the communities, that includes different populations. We all should be concerned just because it's the right thing to do. But if you don't even want to hear that, then how about we talk about the financial reasons to be concerned about some of the inequities? Because when we bring up the cash, people really start to pay attention. I did want to mention something um, that you just triggered a thought. You know, in this country, especially when things take on the normal landscape of our lives, all the toxicity, all the awfulness, we become numb to it. And then Mm. when we circle it and say, can this be different? Suddenly the messenger is blamed. Suddenly the person (laughs) said, can this be different? And I know that firsthand. Mm. I know that firsthand. You know, one of our first projects was to... Um, lower pesticide drift from health-affected communities like schools. Well, let me tell you, if you want to make friends, that's a terrible topic to bring up. And so uh, it is, there's a lot of issues that we are so good at not talking about, but when we don't talk about it, we just pretend life goes on. And we are never going to make changes Um, unless we can address these things. And those who are interested in the economics of this, when they understand Mm -hmm. that we can prevent a whole kind of, a whole bunch of treatment Mm -hmm. and deficits when we take care of very basic needs. Yeah, very basic needs. Like drinking water, like getting people, you know, the most basic things, then we will be, you know, um, much better in so many, so many areas. I'm yeah. sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. This no, is no, this is, this is all good. Again, we're having a convo, right? So, so one of the things you asked about other barriers and you, you triggered something for me that again, COVID-19 has highlighted is the mistrust. There's so much mistrust in the system, n- not only just in, you know, the, the, um, healthcare system, but even in the public health system, which we could talk about that for days, the lack thereof potentially for the United States, but simple things like mask wearing. Mm-hmm. How did that become something that's contentious? Like 
protect yourself, protect others, right? How is that contentious to wear a mask? And so to your point, I think that there are so many small things that can be done that can have very large impact on the lives of individuals who are dealing with cancer, who, who are experiencing it, not only for them, but for their family members. You know, we just talked about the transportation thing, but the, the mistrust issue is something that the healthcare system itself has to work to undo some of that mistrust. Um, it does require bi-directional communication, which can be a little bit of a challenge. But as I said, I'm a community engagement expert. So that's what I try to do is bridge some of those gaps. But we also need to be thoughtful about the fact that, and I think you and I had, had a conversation previously about, you know, understanding that individuals in this country have different levels of resourcing, right? So that's exactly. if, if, you know, you, you did have a car and you were able to drive that car. And even though you showed up without your wallet, you had a vehicle and you can be like, man, I got you. We'll take care of this later. Right. There are individuals who don't have a car right. <laughs> who, who live in or bus money or, yeah, or bu right. Yeah. yeah. So, I got it. Right. Those things. But even like childcare. You know, maybe they're a stay-at-home mom. They're privileged to be able to do that and, and to work from home and to care for their families. But but maybe they don't have anybody to help them when they have a cancer diagnosis and need to go to the doctors, you know, and right. see somebody. Um, that can be an issue for individuals. I used to, not to step on you, but just yeah. in conversation, <laughs> I used to be a volunteer as a, as a young person in my early 20s in a pediatric unit. And initially, I didn't understand why moms and dads didn't come and visit their children. I thought, oh, well, they must not care. Mm. Mm. No, it's not. Mm. They don't have bus money. They have three jobs. Mom, right. mom has three jobs and four other kids yes. and one in the hospital. Those were things that I could not connect mm. for myself. And the minute I did, I was like, ooh, we've got to change this. Right. So those are things that I saw were not really, even as a young person, there've got to be ways we can help. There've got to be ways that we can do this better. So People can get the care. Patients can get the care they need. Yeah. So let me just, I'm going to share because I was, I just finished giving grand rounds at a university and the title of my talk was around a precision medicine. Mm -hmm. And we oftentimes think about precision medicine. Uh, let's identify the gene so we can, you know, develop this new targeted agent that's going to care, you know, is going to come and target this cancer and destroy that cancer cell. And, and while that is a component of precision medicine, I think precision medicine also needs to be us understanding where people, th their context, their social context. That's part of precision medicine. How do we make sure that each person has the right treatment at the right time, right? Well, and not only that, but do they have a, you know, does this person, you talk about target, like, is this person eating? Like, Correct. So that was hungry. Yes, that, that was my point is that precision medicine needs to be inclusive of the things that we know can impact one's I ability to that. access I care. That. I love the way that you have framed that. It's precision because medicine. That, yeah, that's right? perfect. It's perfect. And it puts a lot of people around the table who want the same things, but it's just the way that we've communicated it. Yes. Oftentimes our intention and what comes out of our mouth are two different things. And then yes. a different trail. And it's the one reason when we produce this workshop, why we have so many different people involved mm -hmm. and why we have legislators involved, because unlike some of the treatment that we get in the hospital, 
public health tools include not only education, but things like policies. And we need legislators to understand those things so we can make sure things like precision medicine happen. And that's going to be a word and something we're going to start advocating for. I love Mm -hmm. that. I love that. Let us be as precise with how we ask the question of the person sitting in front of us. If you're a provider, Mm -hmm. be precise in how you are engaging with them around their social context as you are with their treatment plan, right? That's it. It, and, and it really is important for us to start doing those things. Because as you said, food insecurity is a major issue. And it's a major barrier to people mm. having good outcomes. And we right. don't even ask the question. I remember hearing at a meeting one time, there was a trainee who had done some research at her institution looking at food insecurity. And she found that 33% of the people walking through the door in that cancer center had some degree of food insecurity. Like, what? In the United States? That's mm-hmm. one in three people have food insecurity. And if you're not asking the question, you're not going to know that. And so that's just about food. So forget about all the other social issues in terms of what you're talking about. <laughs> you know, I, if you're a pediatric, if you're in pediatric oncology, you know, people can make assumptions real quick. Wow, this child hasn't had a visit from the family, like you said, in like oh, two days or whatever. Well, you know, maybe, maybe there are some reasons behind that. So let's not be judgy. And let's right. start asking people the questions. Be precise in the way you engage with people. Ask well, I think we're so prone to what our perspective is, where we're from, what we're, you know, uh, you, you know, and and I think that that's how we operate. And so mm-hmm. these stories that you're telling are the best ways, in my mind, to teach people that, you know, the world isn't the way it looks in your backyard. Yeah. That's yeah. a piece well, of it. Yeah. Okay. Or even in your, even in your mind, even in your perception, right? Because mm-hmm. look at what happened, you know, again, I don't want to keep belaboring the code. So, yeah. so let's, let's move to, let's move to January 6th. Mm-hmm. There are perceptions in this country that, wow, there was just like a group of tourists who went to the Capitol building. That might be their perception. We were all watching the same thing, but there are so many different viewpoints for, for what happened on January 6th of mm-hmm. 2021. And so we need to understand that our perceptions are clouded, not only by our own experiences, but by who we trust whose information we trust. And that mistrust issue is so deep. The trust issues run deep. And we need to figure out a way to really elevate the public health infrastructure. Because you talked about the importance of education. Again, we see how, you know, people are going to listen to the sources that they want to listen to. Right. That, exactly. It, and and to that point, one of the reasons people ask why we go to the expense of providing CMEs for this mm. Um, program. And the reason we do is, of course, we want to educate healthcare providers, but we also want the general public, of which is great for this, to understand that the information that we are sharing and the speakers and the, and the experts that we're, you know, are renowned experts. These are people who are sharing evidence-based published information. It's not me who just <laughs> thought of something and wanted to share my opinion on Facebook. <laughs> This is all about evidence-based science. And so the one reason that we, you know, because of last year, because of the pandemic, we want people to know that these are, we're just not speaking off the top of our head. There are volumes and centuries of information that are relative to what we're speaking to. So 
you, you know, that's one way we're trying to create trust, but we also are trying to create trust by having more conversations just like this. Mm-hmm. So, can, I, can I just piggyback on that as well? Because I think you mentioned science. We, again, with the pandemic, have seen that people mistrust science as well. Don't know how that happens. But that, again, is on researchers. It's on institutions to really build that trust back in science. Science is what it is, you know. Um, It's not that I'm coming in. We all have a hypothesis, right, especially if you're doing science well. You have a thought about what may happen. And for the most part, you know, the results are the results. Can, Can you tweak it with statistics? Yeah. But the fact that, you know, coronavirus has been around for the coronavirus family has been known for decades and has been researched for decades that's science. And that science enabled us to quickly flip that data to make sure that we could come up with a vaccine that has now been able to protect people from having significant illnesses. I mean, when we look at the people who are hospitalized today because of the Omicron variant, you know, over 90 something percent of the individuals who are hospitalized in the ICU and are dying are those who have not been vaccinated. That's because they didn't trust the science. Mm -hmm. So we've got to work on that too. We do. I mean, one way that we tried because um, I don't, you don't know my story, but I've been through a lot of um, healthcare things with my family and a lot of other things. And when this organization, the work for this organization started in 2003, I was like, I really want something different that's like funded by the people, not funded by somebody that's going to create a message that works for them making money. And so we know, you know, one of the big sharp hurdles for us early on is we had people like, um, you know, uh, soda companies doing obesity programs and and fast food sponsoring cures for <laughs> breast cancer and crazy, crazy stuff that just did, never made sense to me. I was like, I'm not that smart, but this makes no sense. And so... So I just didn't, you know, get it. So the the beauty of what we do at Less Cancer is we are really just an organization supported by the people. We don't have big corporations in here shaping our messages. Mm-hmm. We hope that provides a level of trust okay. among yeah. the public. We hope okay. that does. But I also know there are a lot of great corporations doing a lot of great work. And and so if there, you know, if there were a conflict, for instance, and there, we have lots of framework around what's acceptable for continuing medical education. It's another reason I'm so proud of this and grateful to our friends at UVA for helping us with that. So, um, you know, it is building trust, I think, is a conversation we need to continue to have and think creatively. I would love to figure out a way um, that we could create a round table for that, a trust mm-hmm. round table for health access and what that would look like. And, and that conversation where we could take that conversation. So it's, it's so critical, especially when we're doing that targeted medicine. So people have to know. Yep. Anyway, um, I, don't want to hold you up, but there, there's a lot on my plate I want to ask you. Yep. Um, when we talk about um, toolboxes for public health, the treatment of the patient, as opposed to treating the whole public, can you share some of those differences with our audience? Um, so I think we, we talked a little, we brushed against the fact that yeah. the public health is really important. You mentioned it, I mentioned it. Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes in this country, I don't even know if we discuss what the word health truly means. 
Mm. So let me back up by saying most people think about health as just the absence of disease. And that is not right. <laughs> um, we need to think about health more holistically. We need to think about it the way, frankly, that the World Health Organization spe mm -hmm. speaks about it. Looking at the entire social context, it's a sense of well-being. And that actually helps to broaden and to, for us to think about mental health, mm -hmm. right? The well-being to making sure that we're thinking about all those structural barriers. It gets rolled into what public health needs to address. And so when we think about a public health strategy, it's really not, not only just a science, but it's, it's how implementation of, um, of health processes and programs. Um, how do we think about health, uh, from a population standpoint? Right. There is, there is a difference between public health and population health. Population health is just kind of identifying a specific population, African American, LGBTQ plus, rural population, where you're going to hone in and specify what are some of the programs that might be able to help elevate or improve health status of those communities. Public health is actually doing that globally. And it's really thinking about improving the health status of individuals in their communities and how do we promote healthy lives lifestyles, you know, again, thinking about what health means. Um, but it also includes the research. So researching the disease processes, how do we think about prevention? Um, and so, you know, from a cancer prevention standpoint, for instance, uh, there's, there's need to know more about expososomes. What is it yeah. that we're putting into our body? We talked about food. Um, what are the chemicals that are in food and how are they impacting risk factors for cancer. We know that obesity is the number two modifiable risk factor for development of cancer. Obesity. Obesity. And we have so many processed foods now. How are those processed foods actually impacting um, the risk profile? Um, is it increasing risk for obesity? Is it increasing, therefore, risk for cancer? So this is what public health is intended to do. It's to say, what are the things that may impact uh, you know, well-being and health in a, in a nation, um, and what are the things that we can do to help um, promote wealth? I mean, health <laughs> that includes wealth, frankly. Right. Um, <laughs> that's a whole other thing, right? Um, related to any any of the diseases, but you know, obviously, we're talking about cancer, but it, it's really around any of the diseases. But more importantly, thinking about health and 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 as a as a means to under to have well-being. Um, for each of our communities. Well, there's something I did want to point out. My reason for asking the question is in the few times that I've spoken at medical schools and I'm often asked, how can we make an impact? How can we, you know, I've always asked the healthcare about to be potential healthcare providers to think about being leaders in their community, just like you are, to think about guarding their community not necessarily writing the prescription, slapping on the back and sending them out the door, but they, when we talk about trust, are the people with the education and the background to help guide communities, to help tell them, listen, it can be better, it can be yes. different. But it, it, that matters when a medical doctor or nurse or anybody with that type of training can better care for their communities when they speak up and they speak out and they can put their arms around a community to make sure that community is moving in the direction that they want, working to keep those patients out of doctor's offices. Not that yes. that's not important, but you know what I'm saying. Yes. No, it's prevention is key. And mm -hmm. so this goes back to what you were talking about in terms of education. One of the things that we put into that framework, that document that I had mentioned, or that we had talked about, the paper, where we talked about the framework, the very first thing I insisted that it be number one, community mm -hmm. engagement. 
And again, the engagement is bi-directional. It's not outreach, which is what we see happening with the pandemic. It's not saying, oh, well, look what we've done and you guys need to do this. No, this is about engagement, understanding where people exactly. are. And the only way that we as healthcare providers can do that is by being part of the community. It's not rocket science. It could be giving a talk. It could be, you know, just being present. It could be at, you know, showing up at a, at a health fair. It could be going to your church uh, mm -hmm. if you're a churchgoer or, you know, if it, just to have conversations with individuals. It's being present because right. the educational programs, yes, while we could have this huge, you know, public health, you know, service announcement that's coming from the CDC or whatever, we see how good that does. It's about who's in our community that we trust and that we know. And that's where the public health infrastructure needs to be developed. It needs to be developed around the trusted messengers in each community. But it does require a different thought of what precision medicine is. Mm -hmm. And that that is really one of the lessons that I'm hoping when I have discussions with providers and educators and, you know, when I'm doing grand rounds, I say, let's think differently about our approach to medicine and how we see that individual sitting in front of us. It's a big challenge. You know, everything that you're doing is huge. And so is less cancer, you know, to to shift a culture the way you are doing it is so critical and so important now. And you are a trusted leader, not only in your community, but in many communities across the country. And so your voice is critical. Your ideas are critical. I cannot thank you enough for your work and all that you've done to um, make everybody healthier on, from a global perspective. So thank I'm you. super grateful for everything that you've done. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you even for setting up this forum, right? Thank you for your vision. To well, at the time, there weren't many people sharing it. You know, there was, you know, you rarely saw the word cancer and prevention side <laughs> by side in 2003, much less in the same book. You know, it was a very different conversation. Sure. And, um, you know, it's been a lot of door knocking, but you are a critical leader and we really appreciate your work and everything that you've done. And I appreciate you being here. Thanks so much for fighting for us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. And there's, there's so much more that we all need to do. And I encourage individuals, please advocate on the local level. Yes, you can do the big policy things. But again, it's the person sitting right in front of you. It's the, the impact that you can have with that individual by having discussions in your department, if you're a provider, you know, at your hospital, at your institution that can really make a difference in the lives of the individuals, families and communities that you serve. And if I can add to that, I have three words I ask people all the time, not all the time, but when I think they're necessary, they're important words. Um, to me, they're important because it's amazing what I find out. And, and while I'm not a healthcare professional, I'm pretty good at advocating for people. And so um, the three words are, are you okay? And I ask them to people young and old and all kinds of people when I suspect maybe they're not okay. And very easily, 99% of the time, I can connect a dot for somebody that makes all the difference. Mm. And if I can do that, just by saying, are you okay? Everybody can. All right. Thanks so much. I appreciate you to the moon and back. Thank you very, <laughs> very much. It's been great. Thanks so much, Bill.